Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. Today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 6. The passage is printed in your bulletin, verses 45 through 52. You know, Mark begins with one of his famous words he uses all the time immediately. And this is picking up on the story, if you weren't here last week, where Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 men, probably closer to 10,000 if you count women and children, with two fish and five loaves. And then our text picks up. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is the word of the one true living guide, and it will abide forever. Amen. One of the things that we repeatedly emphasize here at Hope is that the gospel of God's grace invites our hearts to rest, to lay our deadly doing down, to lay down all of the ways that we foolishly think we have to work hard to earn God's favor. Martin Luther explains the way of grace so clearly in the quote on the front of your bulletin. This is from his treatise, The Bondage of the Will. God has assuredly promised his grace to the humble, that is, to those who lament and despair of themselves. But no person can be thoroughly humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, devices, endeavors, wills, and works, and depends entirely on the choice, will, and work of another, namely of God alone. For as long as he is persuaded that he himself can do even the least thing toward his salvation, he retains some self-confidence and does not altogether despair of himself, and therefore he is not humbled before God, but presumes that there is, or at least hopes or desires that there may be, some place, time, and work for him by which he may at length attain to salvation." But when a man has no doubt that everything depends on the will of God, then he completely despairs of himself, chooses nothing for himself, but waits for God to work. Then he has come close to grace. Of course, Martin Luther didn't make this up. Our Lord Jesus explained our complete dependence upon him for salvation. In Matthew 11, Jesus says this, and this is in response to him lamenting in in essence that um, cities where he performed many works would not believe. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and you have revealed them to little children. 
Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, immediately after this statement of Jesus explaining, you can't possibly know God the Father or Jesus unless he graciously enables you, he says, here's an invitation to rest. And this is one of the most quoted verses, I would argue, at Hope on a regular basis. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I bring that up for two reasons. One, as a good reminder and a refresher for us, but also to ask the question, well, then how do we interpret our passage today in light of that? Come to me if you're weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Remember the context of our story in Mark chapter 6. At the beginning of Mark 6, Jesus had been rejected in his own hometown, so he went out to other villages to teach and preach. And then he sent out his disciples in pairs of two, and he gave them power to preach the gospel and invite people to repent, to heal the sick, and to cast out demons. And in verse 30 and 31, it tells us they came back, they were excited, they were reporting all that they had been doing. And things were so busy, people kept coming to them, it said they did not even have time to eat. They were completely exhausted. So Jesus, in light of what we expect from Matthew 11, says, hey, we need to rest. Let's get in a boat. Let's go to a desolate place so we can get away and have a retreat and get some R&R. But the crowds are so excited because of the miracles, they hustle around. And when they get there, you have the 5,000 problem. Jesus begins to teach. The disciples say they're hungry. There's nowhere to buy food. So he performs another miracle that adds on another day. And then it says that Jesus dismisses the crowd he goes up on the mountain to pray and be with his father. And what do we naturally expect him to tell the disciples? Go find a comfortable bed. Go get a nice beer or bowl of soup or something that you enjoy to relax and rest. Turn your cell phones off. Don't respond for the rest of the weekend. You guys have done enough. Instead, it says, and it literally in, in the Greek says that he forces them to get into a boat and start paddling across the lake. Like, like, what is going on here? It almost reads as if he's doing some form of like Navy SEAL budge training. These guys haven't slept in 36 hours. They're completely exhausted. They've been promised they get to go to bed. As soon as they get in the rack, the instructor tells them to get back out in the ocean and carry a log over their head. Like, what is happening? It made me think of Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol on the night that the first ghost of Christmas past appeared to him. It said, Scrooge made bold to inquire what business brought him there. Your welfare, said the ghost. Scrooge expressed himself as much obliged, but could not help thinking that a night of unbroken rest would have been more conducive to that end. Of course, the ghost knew better. And Jesus, the shepherd, redeemer, and friend of these disciples, knew exactly what they needed at this moment in time. So the question is, what did Jesus want these guys to learn, remember, and never forget? Consequently, what does he want us to learn, to know, to remember, and never forget from this passage. I think three simple things. First, the great overwhelming danger of the Christian life. Second, the way of grace. And then finally, the only path to true rest. First, the great overwhelming danger of the Christian life 
is to forget what we confessed in song in our very first hymn. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. See, the way of the Christian life from beginning to end, every single second, is one of complete and utter dependence upon the Lord. When you convert and come to know Jesus, this makes sense. It just clicks. You're blown away and captivated by God's kindness and mercy and love to a sinner like you. But sadly, if we're honest, what happens over time and what can sadly happen over time if we participate obediently in the church and we serve is we can begin to become proud. We can begin to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We can sadly and damningly begin to think of ourselves as being better than others. Now, it's understandable why this would be the case. The natural way of thinking about growth and maturity is you grow from being dependent to being independent. So when you're born, you're completely helpless. Your parents or your, your care providers have to do every single thing or you will not survive. And as you grow up, you begin to mature and become less dependent. When you're eight years old, it makes sense to ask your parents, can I go play with my neighbors? When you're 28 years old, if you ask your parents, can I go play with my neighbors? That's a problem. But in the Christian life, the opposite is true. The metaphor in scripture is not as much, it, it, we are children of God, but the, the metaphor for how you live the Christian life and how you grow is that of being a shepherd and sheep. In Jesus, Psalm 23:1, the Lord is my shepherd, is our good shepherd. And I know there's all this noise in our political climate right now, and you may have a sticker, coffee mug, or shirt that says, I'm not a sheep, I'm not just following some government. Forget that. If you belong to Jesus, you are and always will be a sheep. And to the degree that you forget that, you are a complete and utter fool. Any sheep that doesn't have a shepherd is in great danger. Sheep never grow wise enough to take care of themselves. And that's why they always, from the moment of birth to the moment of death, need a good shepherd to lead, guide, and direct them. In his book, Shepherd Leader, Timothy Whitmer says, the shepherding metaphor is not only comprehensive with respect to the nature of the care received, but also with respect to the extent. This is one important distinction between the metaphor of father and that of shepherd. Children grow up and become less dependent on their earthly fathers, though the relationship continues. But sheep, on the other hand, are always completely dependent on their shepherd. They never outgrow their need for the shepherd to care for them, feed them, lead them, and protect them. And, and our sheepness, translation, our like need and our weakness and our ignorance and foolishness and sin and just mess, it actually draws out God's heart of compassion and love. It's what the text tells us led him to caring for this great crowd. In verse 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach and to care for them. As a Christian, you are and always will be sheep. And it's so dangerous for our hearts to forget this to begin to think that we've got it, that we don't really need God that much, that we really have some stuff going on, that we've got it figured out on our own. And I believe that's what the context is in this story that leads Jesus to saying, you guys aren't gonna get any rest right now. Go out and row against a wind where you're gonna make no progress all night long. When it says that Jesus came to them during the fourth watch of the night, that's between three and 6 a.m. And so they have been out there for hours 
Think about the context earlier in the book of, in, in Mark chapter six, as I referenced, these guys had gone out. God supernaturally gave them power to heal people that were sick, to cast out demons, to lead people to conversion and repentance. And we can easily forget that these disciples were normal guys, which meant what? They would have been bragging and boasting. We know even the night Jesus was betrayed when he washed their feet, they were arguing about which one was the greatest. Do you think these guys weren't arguing about which one had the best demonic deliverance story? About which one had the greatest conversion story? About who healed the person who was the sickest of anybody in their village? Of course. We can clearly say that these guys would have been in great danger of thinking they were more significant than they were of forgetting how completely dependent in every single way they were upon God's grace and his spirit. And that's before the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, think about that, the feeding of the 5,000. Of course, Jesus is the main point. He's the one that does the miracle. But that crowd wouldn't have all known that. All they would have seen is that we've been out here all day in this desolate place. There's no food, no restaurants, no market, no village nearby. And then here come the disciples distributing all of the bread and materials. Without a doubt, these guys would have started to have gotten like a big head and really thought that they were something. Imagine if, you know, Taylor Swift at one of her concerts. I think there are a few people in here like Taylor Swift. My daughter loves Taylor Swift. She's at a concert with 50,000 people, right? And say she takes 45 minutes to introduce her band. And then she says, we're going to take a two-hour intermission and the band is going to come out and I'm going to give them each different sections of the auditorium and they're going to talk to you and tell you stories and they're going to pass out free t-shirts and stickers or whatever else. No doubt those guys would have easily thought when they get back on the tour bus how much better they were than other bands, right? It is sadly the default mode of our heart. And as Proverbs 16, 8 says, pride is unbelievably destructive. Pride always goes before a fall. You know, two weeks ago, it was a pretty crazy weekend in sports when Nick Saban retires, Bill Belichick gets let go, and so does Pete Carroll, right? And you can have debates. I was in class in St. Louis, and we had like a 45-minute debate about who's the best coach ever. It was awesome. That was my favorite part of the whole week. (laughs) I think Nick Saban's the best, just side note, but we can argue about that later. And if you have to say, look, one thing they have in common, of course, Nick Saban and Bill Belichick have never smiled, and they're always miserable and unhappy, and Pete Carroll's a player's coach and all this. But the one thing those guys clearly had in common being great legendary coaches is that they knew what would destroy their team is if they thought they were better than they were. And so a famous, you know, rant by Nick Saban happened in October of 2017. Alabama beats Texas A&M. They win. They win the game. It's hard to win games. They win 27 to 19, but they're ranked number one in the country and everybody expects you're going to win 66 to 3. And it's a close game, right? And I know the SEC, it means more, whatever. And after the game, this is what Nick Saban says. To the media, he says, what I'm trying to do is get our players to actually listen to me, to listen to what I tell them instead of just listening to you guys, the media, tell them how great they are all the time. And he says, are you going to listen to me or listen to ESPN and hear about how great and awesome you are? Man, that stuff is poison. It's like taking poison. It's rat poison, That's why I'm asking them, are you going to listen to me or just keep listening to these guys tell you how great you are? You've probably heard that quote before if you enjoy college football. Sark said it about Texas leading up to, you know, the college football playoff. Quit telling our guys how good they are. It's like poison. Well, listen, Saban's not some brilliant mastermind by saying that. 
Like Jesus clearly knows how dangerous it is for our hearts and how quickly we will think that we are more significant, more important, and better than others than we are. And and what's really sad and twisted is how this can become an unbelievable danger in the church. You know, we had new members join, and one of the great privileges the elders have is to hear stories of new members and how Jesus has changed their heart and brought them to himself. And it's amazing how you can go from overwhelming gratitude for God's kindness to a sinner like me, and then we can meet up later, how are things going, and there can be a frustration and even judgmentalness because they're serving in the church, and it is more blessed to give than to receive, and the way of the kingdom is a way of service. Jesus serves. There's no category of Christian without service, but how even in serving, you can begin to be judgmental towards those who don't serve, right? And, I, and I've heard it regularly, right? Oh, I love serving in the nursery. It's amazing. I love loving on these babies. I get more than they do out of it. I can't believe they never serve. The heck is their problem, right? Like, I mean, we're laughing because we know it's true, right? And, and Jesus knows it as well. That's why in Luke 17, he says, listen, when you have done all that you were commanded, simply say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty, See, knowing the great danger that's setting up residence in his disciples' heart, when they are exhausted and weary in need of rest, he says, get in this boat and go row against a strong wind. What is he doing? He is lovingly shepherding their hearts by reminding them of their need of his grace. Michael Card in his commentary says, once again, the disciples are working at the level of their own inadequacy. This is always true. We are always inadequate to change anybody's heart, much less our own, right? Anyone who makes New Year's resolutions that aren't like lose weight, but they're like actually be kind to my neighbor, to speak graciously, to not gossip, not be defensive, and and you realize how utterly overwhelming it is to change your own heart, like this is always true. We are always in a posture of needing his grace. And this is what Jesus kept trying to teach them. Even in verse 37, when the disciples come and say, hey, it's getting late, there's nothing to eat, there's almost 10,000 people here, what does Jesus say? Who knows everything? You guys give them something to eat. Right, what is he doing? He's reminding them of their inadequacy and need for grace. Why? Not to shame them. Not to like drop kick them in the face and make them walk down the street with their head down, but so they can come to him and experience his grace that leads to joy, that leads to gratitude like nothing else in this world. This is a consistent point that Jesus is reminding them of, that the way of the Christian life is one of humble dependence every second of every day. Listen to what Dane Ortland says in his book, Deeper. Fallen human beings enter into joy only through the door of despair. Fullness can be had only through emptiness. That happens decisively at conversion as we confess our hopelessly sinful predicament for the first time and collapse into the arms of Jesus and then remains an ongoing rhythm throughout the Christian life. This despair is not a one-time experience only for conversion. Christian growth is, among other things, growth in sensing just how impoverished and powerless we are in our own strength. That is just how hollow and futile our efforts are to grow spiritually on our own steam. This is something that we don't always do such a good job of as a church. One of my closest friends, someone who God uses to remind me of my need of grace is arguably as much as anyone besides my wife, 
um, came to know Jesus after going to rehab three times. I remember when he got out and he said, Matt, you know, we, we shouldn't be able to sing Amazing Grace ever if we belong to Jesus without tears running down our face. And he said that the thing that can trip him up and where he can get sideways is when he stops going to AA meetings. Now, again, AA meetings are not the Holy Spirit, but one of the things they do well is they force you, and you can say this is legalistic or not, but they force you before you speak to say, hey, I'm Matt, I'm an alcoholic. Welcome, Matt. Now share what you want to share. Imagine if we did that in the church. Hey, I'm Matt. I'm a sinner. I mean, I'm, I'm like actually a sinner. And I want to tell you kind of what's going on with me. I'm not saying we have to do that. But that intentional practice helps keep them grounded in the first statement of AA in any rehab community. We admitted corporately that we were powerless over our addiction, that only God could deliver us. Right? We just said that in our first membership vow. Do you publicly confess that you're a sinner in God's sight and that what you justly deserve is his wrath and displeasure and you have no hope apart from his mercy. Yes, really no. Yes, I say I believe it. Heart level, no, I don't really believe it. I still think I'm better than this person. I still think I'm better than that person. When, when we were in class in St. Louis last week, this is my third year of this doctoral program and it has been unbelievable. I'm, I'm so unbelievably grateful I get to participate. And the first thing we do, every time we get together in our cohort and there's 18 different pastors and ministry leaders around the country, is we spend the whole afternoon catching up, how are you doing? Like a check-in prayer time. And we wanna know how your heart is with Jesus, what's going on in your family, what's going on in the ministry that you're serving. And, and our um, professor who's just sitting back listening and just kind of guiding the conversation, he's just noticing how much we start to say things like, my church, my ministry. Oh, that's great that y'all are growing. We're growing, we gotta do an expansion campaign. We have this many new members, right? Just how, how quickly we can forget that God alone is the one who's doing all the work and we have the privilege of participating. So then he follows it up by saying, hey, let's spend some time in God's word. Let's turn to Numbers 20. And if you're familiar with Numbers chapter 20, it's a story about Moses. Now, Moses is the guy that God chose when he was gonna redeem his people from slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh, the most powerful military leader the world had ever known, Moses, a murderer who's out tending sheep, and God says, I'm going to use you as a conduit of my grace to set my people free. And Moses is like, but, 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 but I, I can't even speak well. Who am I? There's no way I can do this. And in essence, God's like, I know. There's going to be no confusion that I'm the one doing the deliverance, not you. And then after he does this miraculous deliverance, you can read through it all in the book of Exodus. It's amazing. They're going through the wilderness and the people are grumbling and they're complaining. They're going from, thank you, God, for sparing us and destroying the Egyptians to we can't believe you brought us out here. There's no water to drink. You should have just let us die in Egypt. So Moses turns and he's like, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? And God says to him, I'm going to actually cause water to come pouring forth from a rock. So in Numbers 20, verse 7 through 9, he says, the Lord spoke to Moses. He says, take this staff Assemble the whole congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them as, and give them drink to the congregation and their cattle. So Moses took the staff from the Lord as he had commanded them. So that's the setup. Once again, God is going to do a supernatural, miraculous thing to invite the hearts of this wicked people to trust in him. But notice what happens to Moses and how he moves from, who am I? I can't do it to saying in verse 10, 
Moses and Aaron gathered the people together. Here now, you rebels. Right? I love that. Y'all are sinners, not me. You rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? You notice the change? Come now, you rebels, you sinners, you need to repent. God's going to bring water out of the rock once again to invite you to repentance. No, 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 no. Look what I'm going to do. What power did Moses have in and of himself to bring water from a rock? None. But how quickly we can forget that. And that's always a danger for our hearts. That's why I read that quote from Eugene Peterson earlier of the church is a community of sinners. It's not a business. And the biggest sinner in the whole community is the person who, who gets to be called pastor. My whole job is, is to try to stay somewhat aware of my need of grace so that I can remind everybody else. That, that's simply my only job and all the pastors here at Hope. But what happened last week? I'm sitting in class. I, I'm caught up one moment in God's kindness and I'm texting some of our staff. I'm texting Stephanie. This is amazing. I can't believe God loves me. I can't believe I get to be a child of God, that I get to work at Hope. 30 minutes later, I'm like, that guy's an idiot. That church doesn't know what they're doing. No wonder they're not growing, right? All these things are just taking place in my heart all the time. Both of those are true. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, right? Wicked man that I am when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And Jesus is reminding his disciples of that same thing. Go out in this boat. You're not going to make progress. You're going to be exhausted, miserable, wet, most likely cold, you're going to be fighting with each other, arguing about should we switch positions, should you do a different course, this is your fault for saying go this way, we should have stood up to Jesus and not got in the boat. All the drama is going to be taking place. And then here comes Jesus, right, the great I am, just walking across the water. Of course, they're terrified and freaking out and they think he's a ghost. Jesus sees them. He was paying attention the whole time. And remember that it is their obedience to what he's called them to do as his disciples that led to this situation. He wasn't punishing them for being sinful. It was their obedience that led to this situation. And then Jesus draws near to them. He draws near to them and he says, I am, fear not. This is in our English translation when he says, it is I, you don't need to be afraid, is not a great translation. Because really, literally what Jesus says is, fear not, Ego and me. And if you go back to the Exodus story when Moses is like, how can I go to Pharaoh? He's going to kill me. And even the people of Israel, they've been slaves for hundreds of years. Who am I to tell them sent me with this crazy, outrageous plan of grace? And he says, you tell them I am sent you. He doesn't say, well, go tell them that I'm the God that made a covenant with Abraham, remind them of redemptive history. He says, I am the great I am. I am the sovereign king and ruler of all things. And that's the thing that you need to remember. That's the thing that you need to remember, that alone that will invite your heart out of this foolish plan that if I can just do enough, boast enough, get enough attention, maybe you'll be pleased with me. But notice, I am the sovereign king and ruler of all things, and I'm for you. My heart is one of affection and love for you as my people. You can rest in that. You don't have to perform. You don't have to constantly try to do things that you think merit my approval. You don't have to constantly try to jockey your way into a position that lets you say, I'm better than this other person over here for whatever reason. Stop it. 
you can lay all of that down. Sinclair Ferguson says, somewhere in here, I'm all out of sorts with my notes. Shocker. Sinclair Ferguson, this is so good. He says, our weakness does not keep us from God. Our delusions of strength do. And that's why I love, if you're familiar with the Gospels and familiar with this story of Jesus walking on water, to think about what's left out. You know, we believe that this is essentially Peter's Gospel, but Mark writes it. And if you know what actually happened in the other accounts, Matthew tells us that when they think Jesus is a ghost and they freak out and he says, calm down, I am, be not afraid. Peter says, if it's really you, Jesus, command me to come walk on the water to you. And he does. Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the water. Only person in human history besides Jesus has ever done that. And he doesn't even tell us this story. Not only does he not tell us that story, what does he tell us? He says, we still didn't understand what happened with the loaves. Our hearts were hardened. Now, if you're familiar with the way the scriptures are written, you know that that is an unbelievably condemning phrase. It doesn't carry weight with us to say somebody's heart is hardened. Overwhelmingly in the New Testament, when it says somebody's heart is hardened, it refers to someone who God's going to condemn, someone who hates God. This would be, I don't know, in our cultural landscape, like instead of just saying, hey, I'm a sinner, I'm not perfect, saying I'm a racist. You're like, oh, wow. That's like, you can't be a racist. That's like the worst thing to possibly be in our current culture is a racist. And racism is bad. Don't hear me misunderstand that. So when Peter says our hearts were hardened, we're like, well, wait a minute, something happened. This isn't these guys arguing and debating who's the greatest and story topping. Something had changed Peter's heart. What was it? Well, it was clearly the cross. If you remember, as the story continues to go on, Jesus, this is from Matthew 26. He says, you'll all fall away from me because of me this night. For it is written, I'm going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. And Peter, who was always boasting and always trying to get a foothold on why he deserved God's love and how committed he was, he says, wait, Jesus, though they all fall away, I'll never fall away. Okay, so just think about the context of that. What should have been the appropriate answer? Jesus says, hey, just so you guys know, they're going to strike me. All of you are going to fall away. This prophecy is going to come true. They should have had a Moses Exodus 34 experience where they fall on their knees and worship. Right? We sing how deep the Father's love for us. What do we say? It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. But Peter takes an opportunity to say, no, nah, no, nah, Jesus, <laughs> I'm not even really that caught up in you dying for me to save me from my sins. I'm not going to fall away. I get how all of my best friends aren't as committed as I am. Right? This is a boast in the worst possible way. Jesus clarifies for Peter and says, even this very night, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. And once again, Peter doubles down and says, even if I must die, I will not deny you. And then all the disciples are like, yeah, us too. We're with him. Now we know that they all denied him, of course, because Jesus said that's exactly what was going to happen. And then Jesus said, before it ever happened, after all this takes place, I'm going to go find you in Galilee. And it was only after Jesus went and found them after he restored Peter, after he began to explain to him the way grace works, that he said, now I want you to go and feed my sheep. Now that you're more in touch with your need for my grace every second of every day, now you're weak enough to do ministry. So now you can go out. And this is the way of the Christian life. The same thing happens with the Apostle Paul. 
the Apostle Paul, after he is persecuting the church and killing Christians, Jesus saves him, gives him this miraculous ministry. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says this, to keep me from becoming conceited, right? He's like, the default mode of my heart is to become conceited, even as a preacher and church planner, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So I pleaded with the Lord three times, please let it leave me. But the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardship, persecution, calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How is that possible? Because when I'm weak, I am more clearly aware of my need for grace. And I run to the cross over and over again instead of depending on myself. And so listen to the way Paul even described himself in his letter to the church in um, Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15. This was around AD 53. He says, I am the least of all the apostles. You could translate that in essence like a humble brag, right? I'm not really that good. I'm the least, but I am an apostle. Pretty elite group, right? About seven years go by of him growing in grace and maturity. In Ephesians 3, he says, I'm actually the least of all the saints. Saints is a New Testament term for Christians. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. I'm the least of all of God's people. Then you go about seven or eight years later, before he dies, he writes his young apprentice, Timothy. He says, this saying is trustworthy. It deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the greatest. Not he came to save sinners, but I'm in the apostles and I'm in that group but I'm the, I'm the greatest sinner that I've ever met in my entire life, and Jesus loves me. The way up is down in the Christian life. What an amazing truth that we can lay all of our deadly doing down and just run to the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that your spirit will help us to lay down all of our deadly doing, all the ways that we boast. Lord, I just confess, I, I often am disgusted with how quickly the default mode of my heart is to go to self-righteous pride and judgment, looking for any ridiculous, asinine basis to think I'm better than others and forget how completely and utterly dependent I am upon your grace and mercy. Draw us closer to yourself. Even now, as we respond in worship, anchor our hearts more in your grace. We pray in Christ's name, amen.